Tired of ads interrupting your favorite show? Good news. Ad-free listening on Amazon Music is included with your Prime membership. Just head to amazon.com slash ad-free lifestyle to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Enjoy thousands of ACAST shows ad-free for Prime subscribers. Some shows may have ads. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is The Secret Library, a podcast about writing and publishing books. I'm Caroline Donahue, a life coach who works with writers, and I'm here to tell you this is your year. It's time to stop waiting and start writing. This is episode 64, and once again, we're returning to the archives in our August archive series. This week, we are going back to my interview with V.E. Schwab, and I've had number, a number of listeners write me and say that this is the episode they've listened to more than any other and that they've listened to it as many as five times. Um, I don't blame them because I got so excited recording this conversation. And when I went to make quote images to share online, I came up with something like 35 pieces of incredible advice um, that could be boiled down into a single quote image. So this one really packs a punch If you've listened to it before, I've got it on good authority that repeat listenings keep on giving. So I hope you enjoy this week's archive selection, my conversation with V.E. Schwab. Welcome to episode 38. Today, my guest is New York Times bestselling author, Victoria Schwab, who also writes as V.E. Schwab. She's written many, many books for young adults and adults, including The Near Witch, The Archived, Vicious, The Unbound, The Everyday Angel series, and The Shades of Magic series. The concluding segment of that series, A Conjuring of Light, is coming out February 21st, so everyone will be excited to read that one. Victoria is the product of a British mother, a Beverly Hills father, and a Southern upbringing. So because of this, she's been known to say tomatoes, like, and y'all. She also suffers from a wicked case of wanderlust, made worse by the fact that wandering is a good way to stir up stories. When she's not haunting Paris streets or trudging up English hillsides, she's usually tucked in the corner of a coffee shop dreaming up monsters. I wanted to have Victoria on because she's such a prolific writer and has been so dedicated to the process. And at the same time, she's really honest and frank about what it takes to be a writer. And I know you're going to get so much out of listening to her. Also, her books are really great. So I think if you're looking for an escape, I can't think of anything better than diving into the Shades of Magic series if you haven't already. All right, listen up and enjoy. Hey, Victoria, thanks for coming on the show. That's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Of course. So, of course, we've got a book coming out from your series, and it's coming out right now. But you've got so many series going on. So one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you is, like, you started writing when you were still in college. Amazing. And you finished a master's degree while writing numerous books. I did. (laughs) At the same time. So clearly, anyone who is trying to multitask and live a life at the same time as they're trying to build writing should listen to what you have to say about how you get this all done. Well, I I will say that I don't believe you ever find time. 
you definitely, it's one of those things that I'm making time for everything all the time. <laughs> uh, people who are going to wait until they have time are never going to have it. I think that's yeah. true. So what was the impulse? Like I went to college, many of us did, and we were, you know, doing the things you do in college. So what was it that, that inspired you to start a novel back as a student, if you can tap into that version of yourself? Yeah, it's crazy because that version of myself, I'm just about 10 years out from it now. So I'm 29 and I wrote my first novel when I was 19. I actually started in poetry when I was in high school. Um, I really just was looking for my voice and I I eventually tried almost every format except for novels because I thought I don't have the attention span for that. It's like a lot of pages. And um, I realized as a sophomore in college that I was afraid. I was afraid that I I wouldn't be able to do it. I wouldn't be able to finish it. And I have a very adversarial nature when it comes to fear. And the moment I realized I was afraid of failing, it kind of just like kicked me into gear. And I thought, well, now I have to try. I can't, I can't be afraid of it. Like I can't let that stop me. And I think one of the main concepts in this industry is that you have to want a thing more than you're afraid of it. And, um, and so I sat down as a sophomore in college and I started writing a book. Um, and I finished it, uh, and it was awful. Like it was like well and truly terrible, as it should have been. Like it was my—I'd never written anything full-length fiction. I really just wanted to see if I could get from the beginning to the end. And because I had a background in poetry, it was actually quite pretty. It just had no plot, and the the, the style of the writing was actually enough to get me an agent. And it just—it didn't sell, thankfully. So I was in college. I was a college sophomore. I had an agent. That book went on submission to publishers for nine months, got to acquisitions meetings, the final meetings before a publisher purchases a book four times, and got shot down every time. And so by the time I turned 20, I actually was becoming um, quite well-versed in rejection. Because even though I had gotten this agent, I mean, one of the hardest emotional processes to go through is that you you get an agent and you think, now the door's open. The next part will be easier. And then you just realize that there are still so many roadblocks in your way. And I took it pretty hard, being an only child and fairly precocious and believing if I just work hard enough at something, I'll get it. And um, I refocused on school for another year and a half before I realized that, again, I was afraid. I was afraid I had had a fluke. And I, I didn't want it to be that. I couldn't stomach the idea that that I had just done something as a one-off. And so I hit this kind of divergent point where I could either continue forward with academia and go and get my graduate degree, be a professor, um, do whatever I was going to do next, or I was going to sit down and I was going to try again. And so as a second semester senior, I was an art studio major. I changed my major like six times. First hint that I was <laughs> going to be a writer and not any of those other things. I started in physics, right? Um, and I ended up in graphic design, like in um, promotional design. And I was in the studio space every single night until about 2 a.m. And so I decided, again, you have to make time. And so I would check myself out of my studio space for two hours every night. And I would walk across the street to a coffee shop. This was in St. Louis. And for two hours from 9 p.m. until 11 p.m. when the coffee shop closed, every single night I treated it like a job, I started writing again. And the book that I wrote over that second semester, that spring semester, uh, was called The Near Witch. And it was a fairy tale. And I finished it right before graduation. And it went on submission right after graduation. And it sold that fall. And I had begged of my parents, like, give me the summer, give me like one season to see if it can sell. 
uh, and it worked. It's uh, they gave me till September first. It sold on September second, and uh, and I kind of I hit the ground running from there. It was a small deal. It was a small book, but I I knew I could do this. I was determined now that I had that door open to to keep doing it. And so I mean, but I started the old fashioned way. I I've had my bumps along the way, but it's just something that I'm passionate about and something that I love doing and. And it's a job, but it's a dream job. You know, people always focus on the dream part of that, but it's definitely a job. But it's, I mean, I've been doing it for professionally now for eight years, published since 2011. So about six years, six and a half, five and a half, six years published and 11 books on shelves. So yeah. I haven't stopped. <laughs> no. And that was something that I loved was, a concept of the the overnight success that you've kind yeah. of debunked because I, I think that we have this culture right now of instant, you know, you can put something on Instagram instantly, you can put something on Facebook or whatever, and you can, you can self publish if you want to, but even if you do, how much work goes in up to that point. And I think that it's it is. It's Can you say more? You have a beautiful yeah. blog post about it. Yeah, I just, um, I don't, I take a lot of issue with it because, uh, yeah, uh, people would argue my sixth or my seventh or my ninth or my tenth book was my quote unquote breakout book. And when we do that, not only are we not accurately representing the process, I think we do a major disservice to, uh, like, I don't care about doing a disservice to me. We do a disservice to aspiring authors because we have a cult of the new. And you see it a lot in publishing, the cult of the debut, this idea that we put this extraordinary amount of pressure on someone with no platform, you know? And I always jokingly say, like, you would never do that with surgery. You never be like, and today we have a debut surgeon who's never <laughs> operated before. Let's put all of the work on them. You know, we don't do that, but we do that in this industry. And maybe because I started when I was so young as well, and I was susceptible to it. I saw that happen to me, to many others. And consequently, you you feel like a failure if your first book doesn't take off. And, and instead, the trajectory I've had for my career has been one of slow progress. It's, I've grown a little bit with each book. And sometimes I grow a lot between books in terms of my following and my readership. And sometimes I grow a very little amount. But it's just I would much rather build and have that foundation and build up from there than the pressure we put on these debut authors. And we and sometimes they get a lot of money thrown at them. And so people aren't willing to, to really talk about the difficulty that comes with that because it is a privilege. But at the same time, they're set up to fail. You know, if you're given a six figure deal and you have no platform, odds are you're going to fail. Even if you sell a certain number of copies, you're going to have underperformed and they do that. And then when it's time to get your next deal, you're going to get a fraction of what you got before. And when it's time to get your next deal, you're going to get a fraction. And nobody wants to start their career on a downhill trajectory. It's not it's not healthy. It's not conducive to good books and to productivity. And I think it's one of the reasons why, you know, I joke that I've been in this industry for almost a decade, but it's a really long time for this industry because a lot of times you fail out. You, you, you just like can't swim, you know? And, um, so like, even though I haven't had the smoothest journey and I've definitely had bumps along the way, I would rather have my journey that started small and grew at, at a, a moderate pace from book to book until I suddenly hit this point where at my book 10, I'm a overnight success. Um, I'd rather have that than this kind of burst out the gate debut and everything's downhill from there. Yeah. 
And I think there is something in what you said, too, because I'm sure at the time, as you know, a 19 or 20 year old, whenever this was going on, you were not grateful that the book didn't sell. Oh, no. (laughs) No, no, it's this is definitely like the power of retrospect. I mean, I had a bump early on in my career in which I had a trilogy and the publisher decided not to publish the third book. And it was the very beginning of my career. And and it could have ended that career. Like I hit this point where it would have been very easy to stop, where I felt like a failure, where at the time I just felt like, what's the point of this? Why do I have this much skin in the game? Why does it hurt this badly to care this much about it? And you you have to care. But you keep going, you keep working. And while it's never fun at the time, and I there were a couple years after that went down when I could not discuss it without crying, and I am not a crier, but it you have so much skin in this game uh, and you're so exposed. You know, writing is one of those sports where you have to peel your skin back in order to do it and get at the meat of you. And then you somehow have to put the skin back on and put armor on top to survive the actual industry of it. But it also made me who I am. Had I not been under that kind of strain, had I not been falling out of love with the creative process, I wouldn't have written a book called Vicious, which then propelled me into the adult sphere. I wouldn't have taken a job from Scholastic that then propelled me into the children's sphere. You know, I wouldn't have maybe been looking for these opportunities and these other icebergs to step onto had my own not been sinking. Yeah. So how do you kind of Because now I'm thinking icebergs and you're kind of balancing. How do you do the mental aerobics that comes with being in the younger sphere and the older sphere? And how do these stories kind of come at you? I I imagine them coming in on like a little rocket, like, and you're like, oh, who wants to hear about that? How do they sort themselves Um, out? Well, and that's a great question. It's one I get asked a lot. There's, There's two components to that. One is that I imagine a lot of authors treat their genres and their age brackets very differently. Uh, And I don't. I mean, obviously, the content changes, um, the style changes to an extent, but really every book I'm writing, whether it's for middle school age children or teenagers or adults primarily, every single book I'm writing, I'm writing to a version of myself. I'm writing to 10-year-old Victoria. I'm writing to 17-year-old Victoria. I'm writing to 29-year-old Victoria. And so there's a thread moving between them that is just, I'm writing to me. I'm writing to that version of me. And if it appeals to a new version of me, then congratulations. And if it doesn't, then that's fine as well. There's immense freedom that comes with realizing that there is no one book for everyone, you know? And I talk to my readers a lot about that, that you, I write very, I write very different books and that you don't have to love them all. You can be a fan of one of them and not a fan of another one. And that's okay because I'm purposefully writing different books for different versions. And I was a different person at 10 than I am at 29. And and that's all right. But as far as the ideas, I I always have a backlog of ideas. I'm what I call a kitchen writer. So imagine a lot of different pots on the stove. And I, I'm making all of these different soups. And I basically collect ingredients. And I put them in the soup. And the, the soup sits on the back burner at a very low temperature for quite a long time before I touch it. I don't actually pull it forward to a front burner until I have a really good sense of what it is. And so for me, my creative process time is usually like just on the the brainstorming six months to two years. So I don't, I've never abandoned a book once I've started writing it, which is something that many writers do, but I don't start writing it until I know it's going to be a book. 
So I, um, over time, will collect everything from visual elements to stylistic elements to themes, and I just kind of wait until they simmer, until I know that it's going to be a soup. And if it seems like the ingredients aren't working together, then I, I trash that soup. I never make it. You know, I never take it to the next step. Um, so I continuously do have a backlog of ideas and I, I really don't start on something until I have a good sense of it. So once you start it, are you writing more than one soup at a time or do you, once your soup comes onto the front burner, does it go all the way to the table or are you serving multiple courses at the same time? <laughs> That's a brilliant extension of that analogy. Um, I wish I could. My, I'm sure my publishers wished I could too. Write, uh, fix multiple soups at the same time. I can be planning one book and writing another. I can be writing one book and editing another. I can be drafting a book and promoting another. I cannot be doing two books at the same stage at the same time. So I cannot write two books concurrently. And um, it's just because I write fantastical books. I write books that have a world-building element to them. So even if I could move between the voices, I could not move between the world rules. I would lose something fundamental. I did try once. I was under deadline, and it bit me. I was writing a YA novel um, in third person, and I was writing an adult. I was writing my Shades of Magic series in third person, and the psychic distances were, were wrong. Basically, my YA novel ended up too distant, my science fiction fantasy novel ended up too close. Like, it just didn't work. And, I, and I, I heard it from both editors. They said, this isn't tonally where it needs to be because I had kind of merged the two. So I'm very careful about not doing that, about keeping a really, really good, safe distance between them to the point where it's always difficult because when I'm touring for one book, I'm always editing a different book. <laughs> and so it's like your head is never in the space it needs to be. Like Conjuring of Light is quickly upon us and I'm editing our dark duet, which is the second half of the Monsters of Verity duology. And they're so different that I keep having to kind of bring my brain back to the place of one book that I'm not actually working on right now. I can't imagine. I mean, does that make your, you have to have very clear deadlines because you've got multiple books coming out a year. Yeah, it makes the deadlines very strict, but it also makes them very short. Because imagine being told you have nine months to write two books. Well, if you can write those two books concurrently, then you have nine months to write two books. If you're like me and you have to write them in sequence, you have four and a half months to write each book. Except for me, it's normally like you have five months to write two books. And so it's two and a half months to write each book. Um, and then when you add in travel and promotion, you know, I did 85 events last year and that's, you know, basically more than one every four days, one every three days. It was brutal. It was brutal. And it hurt because you just don't have creative energy. Like creative energy is not a limitless supply. Every time you take something out, you have to put something back in. And so I read continuously. I try to do everything I can to refill the well anytime I am not draining it. But uh, it, it's a process, and I would be lying if I said I had perfected it. I, um, I average two books on shelves a year, and it's, it's, it's hard. It's hard. You know, they're doors that I want to keep open. They're worlds that I love. They're projects I want to do, and I would always, always rather be overworked than underworked. I just, I have a phobia, and perhaps it's because I've always been a full-time writer, from the age of 22, um, and it's very hard to make a career at it. I have a phobia of the work drying up. 
you know, to the point where my my agent has even sat me down in this past year and be like, I think you're okay now for a little while. Like, let's like take a breath because it's scary when you're, when you're in your twenties and your sole provider and you're, um, you're, you're financially dependent on a creative industry and the creative industry, which you have very little control over, you take all the work you can get if you're smart. And like, that's how I survived the first half of my career was by being willing to say yes, to, to take on those challenges and to stretch outside my comfort zone and to, to do whatever I could to make ends meet. And it really wasn't until, um, probably my seventh or eighth book came out and I started to have royalties from the previous books that I was like, Oh, is this how it's supposed to work? Like, this is amazing. Like, because you, you know, ideally your backlist starts to help pay your bills which it's nice. It's very nice. Um, and that's the other kind of lovely thing about working from the ground up and having an uphill trajectory on your career instead of a downhill trajectory is like, ideally you earn through your advance on each book. And so you start to make royalties on each of those books and they add up. Yeah, that's got to be like the yes moment. But I mean, you wrote something recently about those voices about is this going to be any good what I'm working on? Yeah, but that's still there, which I think is really validating. The doubt doubt is perpetual. The doubt never goes away. In fact, I've said um, online several times that the more books I write, the harder the first draft becomes. Because you know, it's not right. And you've become a better writer. And so every time you write a first draft, you know, it's failings. But the fact of the matter is, you cannot fix a blank page. So you have to have something down on paper in order to fix it. But you know, it's not right. It's absolutely maddening. And the doubt gets worse. It gets worse with every single book, I feel. It can be really paralyzing. A lot of authors hit these hiccups, especially in the early years of their career where they haven't figured out how to balance doubt with the need to create. And so they freeze up. And I I have worked through that a bit. I would say it's a thing I hit a couple of years ago where it was really paralyzing. And then you, like, again, the most empowering thing that I came, realization that I came to over the last couple of years was that I was never going to write a book for everyone. And that that was okay. That I was getting readers coming to my events and they said this book, and it was never the same book, but they said this book is the book I needed. You know, and if as long as you have readers for whom the book you've written is the book they need, it doesn't matter if there are other people out there for whom that book is not the book they need. That's not their book. They'll have another book. You know, they'll have they'll find something else. It's so much more important to remember. And I think it's one of the reasons that I am continually telling young writers, write for yourself first. Like write like that's the reason I write to those ages of myself. I am writing to myself as the primary reader. Because that's one of the only ways to ensure that you don't feel like you don't let the process overwhelm you. You don't let the expectations of the industry steal your joy from the creative aspect of it. Yeah, I think it's easy because people start thinking about the expectations of the industry so early. Like, where am I going to put this? Where is it going to go? And that shuts them Uh, down. It's bad. It's toxic. It's, It's one of those like writing to trend, trying to figure out what's going to sell, trying to figure out where your place is on a shelf. In which every young writer, and I say young meaning like young in the industry sense, um, exhausts themselves. Absolutely. You spend so much energy and the, you have to stop at some point. And it's not something someone else can tell you. You feel what yourself when you hit that point of this is going to either break me or I'm going to find a way to exist with it. The sense that like the only thing an author controls at the end of the day is what they put on that paper. 
And so your primary concern has got to be making the best book possible and trusting that it will find its readers. You know, if you exhaust your energies, your creative energies, your neurotic energies, whatever you want to call them, if you exhaust those trying to figure out where your book's branding is going to be instead of working on writing the best book you can, it will show. It will show. And so you have to remember that like, well, everything else is icing. Everything else is fine. Everything else is what you focus on when you don't need to be writing. At the end of the day, like your job is to write the best book. Yeah, because you're not the cover designer. You know, you're not the merchandiser. You're not the marketing department. You don't have to do all that. I'm always I when I do events, I pick I hold up a book and I say like every single piece of the book that a reader first comes into contact with, the author had no hand in. Um, and that's very, very scary. Like authors don't write jacket copy, the back cover copy of the book, the pieces of the writing that you actually read first, unless you just open the book without reading a summary, the editor writes the jacket copy, the publisher determines the jacket copy, literally the only thing I have control over. And like, I'll be lucky if I get some input, if somebody asks my opinion, even though it's probably just to make me feel better about being helpless. Like the only thing I have control over are those words, you know, they're, they're, the most important thing. And it sucks when you get a bad cover. It sucks when you don't get the promotion that you want. It sucks when something goes awry, but it will suck a hell of a lot more if you've couched your hopes and dreams on that instead of the content of the book. Yeah, absolutely. So (laughs) as you're sitting there and it's getting harder and harder because you're, you know, at over 10 books now that have been published and you're writing your first draft and you're like, and you have all of these like little books. I imagine them sitting on your shoulders yammering at you how do you how do you kind of get through that like what's your headspace or what's your strategy for continuing to write that draft bite by bite I am I can I really focus on breaking it down into the smallest possible bites and I I have like a calendar system where I record those bites I I chart each day how much work I do Because I, and that's not to say you have to write every day. There are plenty of writers who don't write every day. I usually do something for my books every day because it keeps the doors open in my head. And the more time I spend away from my books, the more time it takes to get back into them. No, I just, I like, my bites are like 25 minute sessions, you know, and it adds up. I do six to 10, 25 minute work sessions a day, wherein I'm either outlining or writing or editing and continually reminding myself like this part will end. Like I have a, I have emails from my editor and my agent and my friends who will just be like, oh, I see we're at this point of the draft. And I'm like, no draft has ever been this bad. This draft is the worst. I loved my last book. And they were like, oh, hold on. Let me pull up this email from you roughly nine months ago <laughs> where you said the exact same thing about the last book. It's just, it's part of it is just recognizing the madness of the cycle. And like knowing that you can't trust, like I have moments wherein I want to hold down the delete key on my entire book. I have that moment numerous times with every single book. And so at this point, I know I'm going to have that moment and I reach out. I will send my editor an email being like, I am feeling bookicidal at this moment. (laughs) I would like to kill it. And she will be like, send it to me. She won't read it, but she'll be like, I need to know you're not going to delete it. Send it to me so I have it. So that if for some reason we you drink, you know, have too much whiskey and hold down that delete key, it's not gone. So part of it is just recognizing like the absurdity that is the, the, the fact that you're writing something completely in your own head. Part of it's also this 
kind of horrible acknowledgement that you have to you have to accept that the story as it is in your head is never going to make it onto paper. And that first draft is the worst version of it. And you'll spend your edits trying to narrow the gap between the story as it existed in your head and the story that you have on paper. And like just having been through this, the hellish creative roller coaster, like it's such a, it's an addictive process though, you know, but the hellish roller coaster, um, you just like, at least part of your brain says, oh, I recognize this part. This is the shitty part. This is the sucky part. It will end, you know? Yeah. And you have a number of books that are multi-unit, you know, multi-series. Yeah. And you've had one that was killed before you got to finish. So so um, how is that structuring? I mean, you've got a trilogy. There was a point when you're like, maybe it's going to be four books, but Gathering Light yeah, is a trilogy now. The Shades of, so the Shades of Magic series, I never call it a trilogy, uh -huh. but I always call it a three-book series because I knew it was going to be more than two. I knew it wouldn't be more than four. And um, the third book is quite long, but we hit a point where I basically had three and a half books worth of plot. And I said, okay, we have these two options. I can either split this book into two and it will be less satisfying for the readers because the two halves will be thinner and they'll have to wait an extra year or I will, I will make it a very thick chock-a-block, hopefully very satisfying book. And so we ended up deciding, I decided to make it three. The publisher was like, oh, I know they like, want two books for sure. The last thing I would want though would be for my readers to get frustrated with that kind of extra unnecessary weight. That, you know, I could probably, and it sucks. Cause I, I mean, I could have sold a lot of copies. It would have been fun. But, like, I wouldn't have been as satisfied, and I don't think the readers would have been as satisfied. But, yeah, uh, I have series running varying different lengths all over the place. I mean, sh the Monsters of Verity is only two. I always call it a diptych. It's like two halves of a story. Uh, one is the origin story, and the other is the fruition. I play with with format a lot and I play with structure a lot. Vicious is part of a series. It's just, I wrote it specifically, my supervillain story, I wrote it specifically so it could stand alone because I knew it was going to be a really hard sell. Even when Tor took it on, they were like, this is super niche. Like it's a book about supervillains and it's just about a book about like what it means when everyone's a bad person and like, who do you root for? And I love, like it is the book of my heart in that I wrote it for three years and didn't tell anyone I was writing it. It, it, reinvigorated reinvigorated my love of writing like at a time when I was feeling really lost because of what was going on with that other series but um it had to stand as a standalone because until we knew how the sales were going to be you know the I didn't want to give it a cliffhanger after having a book with a cliffhanger get cut mid-series um I didn't want readers to be disappointed in that way again because I I still every single day harbor the disappointment of an entire section of thousands and thousands of readers who feel like I've cut them off from a, um, a satisfying conclusion of something. And so I wanted, Vicious had to be able to stand alone, but I always knew it was a series. So I then was faced with, sometimes you can show that like in, in Savage Song, you know that it's not an entire book unto itself. It's clearly got a next part to it. Vicious had to play itself off as a standalone. I have a book that I'm working on right now that doesn't come out for a couple of years called The Invisible Life of Addie LaRue, which is a single book. It is an actual standalone. I was like, hallelujah. But most of the time, what drives me to have series is that I, I for me, setting is a character, and I spend a, a lot of time on world building. 
And it, it's a lot of time to spend on something to only spend one book there. You know, when you when you develop something like the Four Londons of the Shades Magic series, I could never have, I could never have spent one book there. Oh no, I don't think we could have either. How <laughs> much do you think? I mean, because you've got a master's degree in architecture, so clearly you love uh, art history. Clearly, there's a love of the setting, and you've got diptychs. Like I hear that art history language in there. Yeah. So, how do you go about building the worlds? Like, how is that process for you? Yeah, I, so it's the first thing I do. So a lot of people will tell you that they design their characters first or their plot first or whatever. I design my world first. The reason being all of my main characters in my books are outsiders. And in order to understand outsiders, you have to understand insiders. And in order to understand insiders, you have to understand the society and the world that they exist inside of. So I design the worlds first and then figure out the people who belong so that I can then decide the people that don't. Especially because most of my books that deal with insider-outsider culture, there's always an outsider who was born there but doesn't feel like they fit, and an outsider who's actually not from there and is usually our reader's lens to see because our readers are outsiders too. So yeah, it's the first thing I do. I, I in fact, I, I, several months ago, I posted a picture from a notebook when I was just figuring out the rules for the Shades of Magic series. And it literally is like Red London, Green London, Blue London, and like Green and Blue are crossed out. And then it's like, <laughs> what? And like, I'm like deciding the rules. And it is as simple as that. Like I sit down on paper, the Shades of Magic series, the Londons in it, each are defined not by their geography, which is identical, but by their relationships with magic. So each one, so it's also deciding on like what defines a world and then um, different authors have different ways that they flesh out a world. For some it's food, for some it's architecture, for me it's language. Mm -hmm. So I always figure out the thing, like the small details because the small details are the key ones that you can then infer big details from. I figure out idioms, I figure out expressions, I figure out swears, I figure out drinking songs. I figure out all of these tiny little things which are indicative of someone who has grown up in a world, you know? And, and even when I look back to my very first book, The Near Witch, it's a narrative within a narrative. They have a fairy tale within the village. They have songs that they sing about it. They have all of these little aspects of culture which exist. And so for me, language tells you about high society and low society. It tells you about insider, outsider. It tells you about all of these kind of stratus of a world in one fell swoop. So it's the piece that I lean into most. And you actually create some language. So how is, I mean, that's got to be a word. I mean, there's actual language in there. That's kind of Tolkien, oh, Tolkien-esque. Yeah, we have a, the Tor and I have a story Bible and complete inside the story Bible so my continuity editors can access it is a full glossary every single time a word is used in the series it's added to the glossary so that we can reference it to the down to the point where uh, Arnesian which is the primary second language of the book it's the one that's used most often we understand the grammatical structure of it so that we can take vocabulary words that are used at earlier points and feed them into a, a larger sentence so that the structure is correct um, yeah like it's it's a really in-depth process and I do it very in-depth off the page so that on the page it can seem intuitive. So it's never going to be explained. This isn't like Tolkien where you're 
dependent on that language in order to get some kind of fundamental joy out of the book. I never wanted it because I really wanted accessibility. And I always growing up felt like that kind of narrative was inherently inaccessible because you kind of like were asked to prove that you were an adequate reader, that you were an adequate fan of the series. I never want that. The Arnesian words and the the Antari words and things like that, they're, they're there for flavor. They're there to give you a, a sense of the world as a broader idea, but they are coherent. Like you could, if you wanted to break down and, and see that the sentence structures always follow the same format, that, that like the names of the on the um, taverns are always article descriptor noun, not article noun descriptor, things like that. Yeah, it, it definitely makes a language nerd like me happy <laughs> to, to yeah, just play editor, with them. My editor is the big language nerd. So she's she holds me accountable to all of it. That's awesome. And then you are a big traveler yourself. Mm, wander. So that seems like it plays in as well. Like what role does your own travel play in your writing process? You know, it's easy to think that because I've because author is my only full-time career I've ever had since graduating university, it's easy to think that I live in this space where I, I'm tethered to a couch or a desk and I don't really live in any lives but my own. Uh, and while writing itself is a solitary profession, experiencing things um, is, I think, fundamental to a good writer. And so I spend a lot of my time in motion. I spend a lot of my time traveling, putting myself uh, deliberately out of my own comfort zone so that I can experience lives which are not my own. I can see things which are not natural to my environment. I want to be living as many lives as possible. I always joke that like I pass my alternate selves and I like feel like I'm, I hit these little bridges and these crossroads in my life where I can imagine another version of myself is already there. So I travel a lot and I, I, I read a lot and I try and meet people in every city I go to. I try to make new friends wherever I go, despite being a huge introvert, I um, I still just think it's absolutely essential. Because for me, that's where stories come from. Stories don't come from reading other books or from watching movies. Like That's where a sense of how narrative works comes from. That's how your intuitive understanding of story comes from. But when it comes to ideas, for me, they come from wandering. They come from being places I wouldn't naturally be and something ticking off something else inside my head and me realizing like, oh, that's the common thread that I need for this story to work. It's you can't go looking for it. You just have to be open to it. My mom would always say whenever she went anywhere, she got lost on purpose, you know, and I think getting lost on purpose is one of the most underrated things that a writer can do, you know, and so I'll go and I'll sit in a in a tavern, in a bar, in a coffee shop, and I'll talk to people and I'll just kind of be someplace, you know, I'll just, I don't have to go out and this is not me being like Anthony Bourdain. I don't go like befriend all of the people. I'm not that outgoing, but I will try to immerse myself and I don't do the touristy things usually. Like I, I'll try and find somebody, I'll make friends um, or kind of reach out to a contact of a contact who's a local and I want to see the city the way they see it. I mean, it is interesting because you've got a lot of taverns in the. Uh, yeah, I love taverns. Yeah, the story, <laughs> and they're yeah, they're the gateways and they're places that people can pass through to other Londons. So that's interesting to have that context. Well, it is. It is like um, I mean, taverns like an original melting pot, right? Like people come in for different purposes. They come in when they're traveling through a place, or they come in as a local. 
You know, it's one of those places that caters as much to insiders as to outsiders. And again, as kind of a cheat code to the world around it, it's a place where when we can hear a variety of languages and dialects and people and classes, like there's a unification that happens in a tavern. Yeah, I'm a I'm a tavern lover myself. I prefer yeah. I prefer watching rugby because I don't think I can ever understand it in England to watching <laughs> American sports in the US because I, yeah. I definitely don't understand them either. But I feel better about not understanding rugby. Yeah. So how are you fitting in reading and how are you choosing because you read a lot. So how is that influencing your process? Yeah, so I about two, three years ago, I decided I wasn't reading enough. I was really busy and I couldn't find time, right? And at the beginning of the interview, I said, it's not about finding time, it's about making it. And I I realized that reading is a fundamental part of my job. And not just in the, oh, I need to know what else is selling and what else is on shelves. It is a fundamental part of becoming a better writer. Because I always, I when I do school talks and stuff, I talk about the sense of a story monster. It's this thing that lives inside my chest behind my rib cage and the more stories I take in the the cleverer it gets it learns right and I'm a very intuitive writer and so when I sit down I need to be able to feel whether the story is working in an emotional way I need to be able to feel whether the scene has too many beats whether it's doing what it needs to do and so often what helps me in that is that story monster this gut sense that something is or isn't right and the story monster doesn't tell you how to fix it but it's just a kind of barometer. And I have found that reading very broadly, uh, everything, not just what I think I would like, but everything uh, is the best way to feed and kind of advance that story monster. And so I essentially decided that reading needed to be treated like any other part of my job. It needed to be something that I made time for, a commitment. And so I set out to read 100 books a year. I always have one paperback, I always have an ebook and I always have an audiobook. And so the audiobooks are, you know, I do a lot of wandering and walking. I just like I walked like six miles today between my friends place and back here and I was listening to Sarah uh, Waters the Paying Guests. You know? And like I will always have something on in my ears. I, I take it to the gym with me. I take it wherever I go. It goes in the car. It, it's just I'm continually accompanied by narratives. <laughs> And, and in that way, I get it done. And it's still difficult. I still have to work at it. I'm in a period right now of intense editing. So I'm really not reading very much. And what I am reading is nonfiction. Because it doesn't get in the way of my own voice. But I just committed to it. I, I really, truly have noticed, personally, um, quite a large difference in the quality of my writing and in the quality of my editing and work in the two years since I committed to reading that much that it's kind of been a fulfilling prophecy. I've, it'd be one thing if I kind of had hit the end of those two years and be like, ah, I don't know. It's a lot of time to lose that I could be writing. But honestly, I don't think the writing would have been good. I don't think it would have grown in the ways that it has objectively, like if I didn't have that much input happening. And I just, you know, I make other sacrifices. I don't watch TV. I'll, I'll sit down and I'll have like the way one would read a book. I'll have a single television show. And I watch one television show at a time to kind of study the narrative arc. I don't channel surf. I don't have cable. So when I watch a television show, I watch it the way you would read a book in, in kind of one, one you know, narrative at a time. 
I just make time for it. <laughs> it's it's hard. Um, it's easier actually when I'm traveling and when I'm touring because I don't have the brain cells to write. I don't have the focus to write. But if I'm on a 12-hour trip, you know, I can get through a couple books. Yeah, that is the best part. So Yeah, I don't feel guilty at all. I'm no. like, well, I can't work. Like no, <laughs> nobody can work on a plane. I don't understand these people working on planes. I'm like, no, just read. <laughs> so uh, the last question I have is that you are in the process where Shades of Magic has been optioned and you yeah. got to kind of get into the screenwriting process to start that process. So how was it to take your own book and adapt it into your own kind of screenplay, even if you're maybe not going to write the whole series, but it was weird. <laughs> it was weird. It was a really fabulous challenge. I really like challenges. I think I went in thinking it would be a lot easier than it was. Um, and really what it became was a crash course education in screenwriting. And I was lucky to have um, my development executive, Danielle, who basically held my hand. She knew I didn't know how to write a screenplay. She wanted to help me learn how to write a screenplay. And I mean, we probably did nine rounds. Like, I mean, she was devoted. We would go back and forth every week via Skype or via the phone and just talk through it. And I would edit and I would edit and I would edit. And um, I always say, like, God knows what will ever happen with it. God knows if the show will actually happen or when things take so much time, they make publishing look fast. But I grew so much over the course of the six months that I was doing it. And, and it really was a fascinating divergence of format. You know, you think if you can write in one format, you can write in another. And they prove so different. And really anything that allows me to stretch in that way and see a new environment, a new creative path, it, I'm, I'm indebted to it. So I'm really grateful I got to do it. And I'm hoping to do more. Um, screenplays are something I've always really wanted to do because for me, dialogue and world building are the two things. Like, and I love writing dialogue. And so it kind of, it lends itself well. I'd love to actually try adapting somebody else's books because I always was better at art direction than art. <laughs> um, so I think it would be fun and it's, it's opened some doors I'm really excited about. But I'm a, I am the perpetual skeptic. I've had, I think, three or four, four things optioned at this point for either TV or movies. And I'm just like, yeah, sure, guys. And all everyone's like, when's the show going to be on? And I'm like, I'm, I, when I sit down with a bucket of popcorn and watch it, like, then I'll consider it real. And until then, like, thanks for the check. But I'm going to keep writing my books because that's my job. You know, my job at the end of the day is, again, to, as my agent would say, keep my eyes on my own paper and work on making the books good enough that people want to option them. Yeah, it certainly doesn't you know? hurt to have that extra, you know, validation, but it would be nice to see yeah. them. I think Oh god. I think we're <laughs> at the point where those books could be well done. Yeah. I think I'm excited mostly because I know with my team that I have um that they either and I've and I've made this very clear from the beginning and my development executives agree with me those books will either be done right or they will not be done at all. Like we have an understanding that these will not be done to a subpar standard just to have them done. I would rather have no TV show than, and I know it's an incredibly privileged position to be able to say something like that. But at the end of the day, like my, the readers for this series are extraordinary and I love them and things they have done and the commitment that they have to these books, it would not be a gift 
to them to have the books not done well as a screenplay or as a, a series. And so luckily my development executives feel exactly the same way. And they are, you know, tens or not at all. Like they want it done properly. And so it's one of the things that actually slows the process down a lot. And I try to get help my readers understand that is that doing a thing poorly is fast and doing thing well is slow. Yeah, you can have you can have fast, you can have cheap, or you can have excellent, you can have two of the three, but not all of them. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. And at the end of the day, like, I want it done well, I'd love I nothing would give me more joy than to take a picture with the cast of a television show in which I have written these characters into existence. Like, I want nothing more. But I don't want it enough to throw away the story. Or the, or the world that you've built. I mean, I think that, you know, as long as we're all reading it, that world is already alive there. And so yeah. to put it outside and have that fundamentally change the way you see it in your head, of course you want it done right. And the series, like, I just, I mean, there is, I mean, and I understand that there is a reason that people call this series my breakout series. It, I, and I'm grateful to it. I will never not be grateful for someone to some to think I am a success, even if they you know, couch it with overnight. But like, the fact is, the series has already done so much more than I or anyone I think really ever expected it to do. And the fact that it's still gaining the readers that it's gaining each day, I can't really ask for anything more. I don't really feel like I'm entitled to any of it. Um, So I'm just grateful for what it has. You know, that's its gift unto itself. And you're going to write more, you're already writing more. There's, there's other no, stories. It's part, of the, it's part of the body of work, you know? Um, and I, I love it dearly. I've never actually had a harder time letting go of anything than I did. Both my editor and I cried at, like, the, the drafting and the revision and the turning it in and then being done. Hmm. I've, I'm really proud of it. I'm really excited for readers to have it. Yeah, we're excited, too. So thank you so much for for coming out and talking about all of this. I know everybody listening who's who's dreaming of writing or struggling along writing will be grateful for your insight. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's been it's been wonderful. It's given me a great excuse to not be editing. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm happy to provide that. (laughs) Thank you for listening to the Secret Library podcast. The show is produced by me, Caroline Donahue, and Frederick Barry McWilliams Jr., my tireless audio engineer. To get show notes for this episode and all other episodes, please visit secretlibrarypodcast.com. To get updates, literary love, and notification when new episodes are posted, sign up there for Footnotes, my newsletter. And to learn about life coaching with me to work on building your writing life, visit carolinedonahue.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend. Gold stars to everybody who leaves a rating and review on iTunes. We're so grateful. Until next time, happy reading. Tired of ads interrupting your favorite show? Good news. Ad-free listening on Amazon Music is included with your Prime membership. Just head to amazon.com slash ad-free lifestyle to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Enjoy thousands of ACAST shows ad-free for Prime subscribers. Some shows may have ads.